Today we're going to be reading from Genesis 25 to 43. As soon as Rachel, I'll give you a second to get there if you may. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Joseph said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I may for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know I have served you, and how your livestock Excuse me, and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. <clears throat> but now, when shall, I for, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass. Through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if you found me, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees and peeled white, white streaks on them, exposing the white of the sticks. He said the sticks he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred, then, and since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and said, The faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the, main increased, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray together this morning. Father, we honor you 
You alone are worthy of our gratitude, our praise, and our worship. We thank you for the gift of prayer, knowing that you hear us, and Father, even more so that you know already what we need. We thank you that the ascended Christ is now interceding for each of us by name. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, praying for our every need. We can easily face the challenges of this broken world and the power of your provision. We are thankful for the gospel. We deserve your righteous judgment as all of us are sinners, rebels who have fallen short of your glory. But you condescended to take on human flesh, perfectly fulfilled your law, where all of us have failed. You went to the cross, not for your transgressions, but for ours. And there you paid our debt, you paid our penalty, exhausted the judgment that was due each of us, was buried and rose again. Assuring us of victory over the enemy that is sin and death. We pray for the person here today who does not have the assurance and relationship with Christ that your gospel affords. We pray for the Spirit to reveal to them the truth about themselves and about Christ. I pray for the gift of faith and repentance to flood their hearts this morning. Father, I pray that you will endow them with boldness and courage to profess their faith in you publicly and to follow you in a committed fashion. Lord, we pray for our community. We indeed are blessed to live in such a place. Our comforts, our luxuries are so lavish and yet they are so dangerous because they mask people's need for you. I pray that you will move and work in this community in a miraculous fashion. Lord, use us, the members of Milton Community Church, to faithfully and fruitfully proclaim your gospel and to share your love. Make us a radiant display of your glory throughout our community. May they see clearly that we love you according to your word. May they recognize that we love one another by your grace. And may they see powerfully how we evangelize and disciple for your glory. Father, have your way in us. Use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. People are generally driven by the pursuit of money or wealth. You know that. You've seen that. You've experienced that. The Scripture tells us that it's not the pursuit of money that's a problem, but it is the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. 
and pierce themselves with many griefs. Jacob and Laban have mixed histories. They have shown us that they are deceitful, that they will resort to all sorts of conniving in order to get something, to achieve something. Laban's history clearly indicates that he is influenced by an appetite for wealth. Jacob's motivation is not quite as clear. He's a deceiver, but his motives are unclear. Did he do the things that he did because his mother had influence over him and instructed him in this direction? Did he do the things he did because God had told him that he had plans for him to prosper him and bless him and he was trying to help bring this to fruition? We don't know. We do know that Jacob has met the Lord on this excursion, this exile from his homeland into Haran, and as he has gone, the Lord appeared to him in a dream and gave him the same promise that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac before him. The negotiation that unfolds in this text offers us some very hopeful lessons regarding wealth and our view of it, our approach to it. Jacob shows us basically three ways that we can maintain a proper relationship with wealth. And I want us to explore those this morning. I think it's very beneficial to all of us. First of all, we see in Jacob a healthy attitude about wealth. A healthy attitude about wealth. Many years ago, I had a friend. When I was first out of college and began working, I made a friend there at the place where I worked, and this friend talked to me a lot about his ambition. He was maybe two years older than I was, something like that. He had this ambition, this insatiable desire to retire by the time he was 40 years of age. I thought, 40 years of age, that's a long time. He was a talented guy. He was proficient in writing music and playing a guitar and singing. He was also an accomplished carpenter, contractor. He had many different skill levels. He could interact on a business level and was good at, we might say, turning a dollar. But he was unable to harness those desires. The goal that he had before him to retire at 40, in other words, this was another way of describing his this desire for wealth. Last I heard, he was in prison. Another friend was obsessed with calculating his net worth. Computers were just starting to make their presence known, and he had this software program that calculated your net worth. And he was always talking about this, always asking, do you know what your net worth is, your net worth? And I said, yeah, I know, it's nothing. This led him down a path. He was a professing Christian and a leader in the church. And yet, it led him to a contentious breakup with his business partner in which he siphoned off or hijacked customers from that business and went and started his own competing business. I went to school with a young lady. She was a year or two ahead of me as well. And 
she ended up serving the church that I grew up in as their um, receptionist and secretary, and she took care of the books and all those kind of things. And they discovered several years after she'd been working there that she had been engaged for some time in embezzling funds from the church. It was estimated that she had embezzled as much as a quarter of a million dollars over several years, and she used that money to gamble. She was going, traveling to casinos over the weekend and gambling the money away. So she was sent to prison. Forecasters, as recently as two weeks ago, predicted that more than 60 million people would wager more than $23 billion on the Super Bowl. I have yet to see any final tabulations to see where that ended, but they had a pretty good idea that this was going to take place. If you visit any convenience store, and if you happen to be in a hurry, good luck with that, because you're going to have to wait to check out, for there will be people in front of you that are checking out purchasing lottery tickets. There was a November article in 2022 in a periodical that I read that said annual illegal unregulated gambling totaled $511 billion in the U.S. That's half a trillion dollars. And that's undocumented. The government's unhappy about that because they miss out on all the tax revenue. And in fairness, I should state that people don't gamble just to acquire money. Some of them do it for escapism purposes. Some of them do it as an adrenaline rush. Others do it for the competition, and some socialize through it. How odd is that? How desperate do you have to be for friends in order to lose money in gambling in order to have some to talk with? But money still continues to be a major factor in all of these equations. Writer Leah Muncy recalls one of her earliest memories is of her mother buying a lottery ticket at the supermarket. She says, when I was young, my mother was always talking about the lotto. Around the kitchen table, she'd tell us what she was going to do with the millions, buy a large farm with chickens, fly us to Mexico, solar panel the roof. Now, the odds of winning the multi-state Powerball jackpot are 1 in 292 million you have a greater chance of dying from a falling coconut, which has been estimated at 1 in 250 million. But despite this, Americans spend billions of dollars on lottery tickets annually. According to a study conducted by Cornell University, the lottery is most aggressively advertised in impoverished communities, particularly minority and rural white Neighborhoods. This exploitation leads to the desperation hypothesis. Those in the direst of financial circumstances turn to the lottery as a Hail Mary strategy. It is a source of hope for those in despair. A 2019 survey found that 75% of lottery players believe that they will win. A study also found that people who made less than $30,000 a year were more likely to play the lottery for financial stability. One in three Americans with incomes below 25000 believe that winning the lottery represents the most practical way, the most practical way for them to accumulate several hundred thousand dollars. This, in turn, only makes America's poorest even poorer. 
There's a difference between Laban and Jacob in their attitudes regarding wealth. Laban is clearly driven by greed and by keeping score. Jacob does not seem to be so greedy. After all, he spent 14 years working for Laban for a wife. Actually, he got four in the process, but he didn't set out to get four. And we see no reason to believe that Jacob was interested in acquiring wealth. Now, caring for one's family is one thing, but he doesn't seem to be consumed with becoming wealthy. I might even submit to you today that the secret of Jacob's success in working for Laban, even in an unpleasant earthly relationship, is that he was really working for God who would protect and prosper him. Ephesians 6, 7, and 8 says, With good will render service, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. I remind you again of the promise that God made to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 15. In his dream, where he saw the angels ascending and descending. He also saw God. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. And you read just a few moments ago in Genesis 30 verses 43. So the man, Jacob, that is, became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Jacob was not trying to become wealthy. He's willing to walk away from it. In fact, he tells Laban, I'm turning in my notice. I've worked for you for 14 years. But he was still just as poor as he was when he got there, except now he had four wives and all these children. 11, 12 children that he needed to support. He's willing to walk away from it with nothing more than, when, than what he had when he arrived. Now, this is not an encouragement to be lazy. We should be industrious. We should nurture a healthy work ethic for God's glory. Nothing wrong with building wealth in an ethical and God-honoring fashion. And as God blesses, we remember we are His stewards. It all belongs to Him, after all. In other words, we're not willing to advance our own wealth at the expense of others. That's wrong, and it's ineffective. It always leads to destruction. Jacob seems, appears to have a healthy attitude toward wealth. But he also has a proper approach to work. We should take note that Jacob is not a lazy man. When he first arrived with nothing, he had nothing when he arrived, and he immediately went to work. 30 days or a month later, we have the conversation 
where Laban approached him and said, You shall not serve me for nothing. Name your price. Name your wage, what you will have, and I will give it to you. Already in just one month, he recognized that having Jacob working alongside him was a great benefit. So he was not lazy. Some people may use faith as an excuse for doing nothing. I'm going to wait for God to bless me. Well, God doesn't bless those that are lazy. If we are healthy individuals, He has created us to be working. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. Let me just give you a little biblical theology on work. By the seventh day, God completed what? He completed His work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Work was demonstrated by God, and it was designed by God as man's earthly occupation. We are created in his image, Genesis 1, 27, and we follow his example of working. Psalm 19, 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Genesis 2.15, then the Lord took the man, that is Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it, or to work. Now, God's work is creative. God's work is purposeful. God's work is thorough. God's work is enjoyable to him. And God's work is beneficial to us. Psalm 92.4 says, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. You, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. You remember in Exodus as God had laid out the stipulations for his people to be his people. He says in Exodus 23 and verse 12, one of the conditions, he says, Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. Work is the means by which we sustain life and we make discoveries about God's world. Often we treat work as an unpleasant experience, don't we? We allow the circumstances in which we're working or the people we're working alongside or the people we're working for to turn it into drudgery. Work is engaging in a physical and or mental activity to achieve a purpose. Lifting a spoon, which some of you will do in a few moments as you sit down for lunch, or lifting a fork, is work. Carving a horse or dog out of a block of wood is work. Forming a sidewalk with stone or with cement is work. Preparing a lesson plan for students at school to teach them is work. Preparing a lesson to... Teach a discipleship class at church is work. Sowing, cultivating a garden is work. Cutting the grass, shaping the landscape, it's work. Painting a door, vacuuming the carpet, preparing a meal, it's all work. And God says, Colossians 3, 23 through 25, this about work. Whatever you do, whatever you do, this implies everything Whatever you do, work at it with, your, with all your heart as though you're working for the Lord. Not for men, 
since you know that you receive an inheritance from the Lord. He's saying, stop working for the wage that men give, but work for the reward that the Father gives. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Our place, our assignment comes from the Lord. I know you think the job that you have, you earned it. You negotiated it. You sought it out. You found it. But you didn't. God's provided it for you. God's placed you there, not only to meet your needs, your need for work, and your need for gaining wages, things that you can turn into purchasing things for your family, feeding your family, but He has placed you there on the mission field. That is your mission field as a Christian. We're instructed to put forth our best efforts to work from our heart and soul. Proverbs 14, 23 says, All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 9, 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. A strong work ethic is confirmed in Scripture with warnings against being slack. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone's not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading undisciplined life, going, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. That's much more fun, maybe, but it's not productive, it's not gratifying, and it's not God-honoring. Now, Scripture says that heaven is a place where believers rest from their labor. And some may be disappointed to know that we're going to work in heaven. I know, right? Some of you, your, your attitudes about heaven just took a hit. Re Revelation 22.3 says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, speaking of heaven, of the new creation. And His bondservants, that's all of us, will serve Him. We will work if you have some image of drudgery and hardship, then you've missed the truth. We're going to work, but it's going to be different than the work you have here. It's going to be a perfect environment, a glorious environment. And do you realize that everything you attempt to do in the kingdom to come will always work out correctly? Always. You know, yesterday I, my wife was wanting to do some weed eating and she wanted me to go out and well, you know how that works, right? You know, you haven't paid any attention to the weed eater all year, and so the first thing that happens, you have to replace the, the string, the, the thing that cuts. And so you have to disassemble these things. You have to deconstruct it, and you have to wind these things up. And this is like a 30-minute ordeal. Why? Because work here can be awkward and clumsy, and we always do it backwards, and then we have to go get glasses and look and see... At the, look at the instructions to see how to do it correctly, right? And then all of a sudden, everything falls into place. And it just happened, but you don't know how you got there. So you can't duplicate it. You can't do it again. But you're just glad you got it done and you go on and do what you do. In heaven, there will be none of that. None of that frustration of doing it incorrectly or having it go haywire with you or having all these hindrances and obstacles. Everything will go as it's supposed to go. You won't have to read instructions, I don't think. 
I think that might be at the other place. Somehow, innately, we're going to know what we're supposed to be doing. Or maybe the Lord will just explain it to us in simple terms. But work's going to be a joy. It'll be gratifying. It'll be perfectly productive. And it will honor the Father. Jacob's words to Laban indicate his faithful work. Genesis chapter 30, verse 26 here. He says, you know how much work I have done for you. He said, my record speaks for itself. You understand. And Laban has to agree. He says, he cannot complain about Jacob's approach to work. It's one thing I can't say against you, Jacob. You do know how to work, and you've brought blessing upon my house. Your God has blessed you and therefore blessed me. Even though Laban is a pagan, he recognizes and acknowledges God's blessing through Jacob's work. Jacob got this right, and God was honored. God was glorified. Eyes were directed to God through Jacob's work, not just to Jacob. And Laban was not an easy guy to work for. In fact, he was quite greedy and difficult. And yet Jacob went about his task in a productive, even thriving fashion. Now the third thing that he shows us is a genuine trust in God. A genuine trust in God. There were no retirement plans or programs in pre-Christian centuries. There just weren't. There were no social security programs, no taxes or benefits. When Laban challenged Jacob to name his wages, Jacob had all the leverage. Imagine that. Name your price, Jacob. Just name your price. Whatever you need, that's what I'm going to do. You're that good and valuable to me. Just say the word. This reminds me a little bit, Jacob's response does, of Abraham and the king of Sodom. Do you remember that? When we studied that in Genesis 14, Abraham heard that Lot had been uh, taken captive, had been abducted by the alliance of kings from the north, and they had plundered the cities in the south, and they had taken all the goods and a bunch of people with them. And Abraham took 300 men that worked for him, and they went and they... Uh, freed the people and the possessions and they brought them back. And the king of Sodom met them there and he said, look, just give us the people and you take all the goods for yourself as payment for what you've done. And you remember what Abraham said? He said, no, <laughs> I'll not take those goods lest someone say that you made me rich. But my trust is in God. God's the one who prospers me and blesses me and he's the one who will get the glory not you Jacob follows a similar plan here he says his response is quite remarkable he didn't want anything from Laban he said I don't need you to give me wages he said he laid out this this incredible idea his proposal is to cut out the spotted speckled goats and sheep and the black lambs and I read something in recent days where uh, scholars say that this would have been a small portion, a very small portion of the flocks, that it just wasn't, um, this was kind of an aberration for them to be marked in this way at that particular time. 
So he's saying, look, I'll trust the DNA. I'll trust the coloring that comes out through these. So I'll separate those out and those will be my wages. And there'll be no way we can manipulate this or scandalize this in any way. And Laban said, that sounds great. He knew it was a small group. But this is how Laban worked. Not only did he know it would be a small group, but as soon as he agreed to it, he had a word with his sons and he said, go get all of those marked goats and lambs and sheep and take them three miles out somewhere away so that when Jacob goes through the herds, the flocks, he will not be able to find any or it'll be even less than what it would have been normal. So basically, Jacob is starting out again with nothing. But he doesn't complain. He's not concerned about it because his trust, his hope is in God and what God will provide. So why does he peel these rods and put them in front of the flocks and create these white stripes and go to the the issue of putting them before the troughs and putting them before them as they mated? Did, Did this affect the coloring of these flocks? I don't think so. I think there's a couple of things going on here. And we're, we're going to have to speculate just a little, but there's no reason for us to believe that these sheep and goats looking at these striped rods while they're drinking or while they're mating actually affected the coloring. I, I think this was a testimony of Jacob's trust in God. This was something that reminded him of where his trust really was placed. This is a lot like, if you remember in Numbers chapter 21, when the fiery serpents came in and began to bite the people of Israel and they died from it, and God said, they cried out to God, and God said, make a bronze fiery serpent. Put it on a pole in the center of the camp, and when the people are bitten, tell them to look to this fiery serpent on the pole, this bronze fiery serpent, and I will bring healing to them. Now, the fiery serpent didn't heal them, It didn't take the sting out of the bite. It was the faith, believing God's word, taking him at his word and doing what he said that ended up bringing healing to them. I think that's kind of what Jacob's doing here is he puts those striped poles in there. Maybe he believed God had instructed him to do this. And so every time he looked or he placed them there, it was reminding him that he was believing God's promise that he was going to bless him in a great way. Personally, I have my own theory too. I think, you know, Laban was superstitious. Laban was a pagan. I think he might have been playing with Laban's head a little bit. That's just me wanting to have some fun with it, right? Hey, Laban, won't you try some of these striped poles and see how that works for your herds? There's nothing in Scripture about that. That's just the pastor, okay? Jacob started with nothing, but God blessed him with exceedingly high productivity. The the flocks not only were multiplied, but they were stronger. They were better than those of Laban's. Laban's became small and weaker And Jacob's became stronger and greater. Now, what's it got to do with anything? Moses, I remind you, is writing to the Israelites. This is during the wanderings out there that Moses is actually 
penning Genesis. And he's got the Israelites in mind. And he's reminding them how God blessed them even as they left Egypt. Remember, Egypt was the strongest nation on the face of the earth. They had everything and they were prosperous. And they had Israelites in captivity for 400 years. And they were building their empire on the backs of the Israelite people. And God set them free. We know about the ten plagues. But he did something else. Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 and 36 says this, Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. So before they were liberated, they had actually petitioned their bosses, the people that had them in bondage, and said, Look, we're getting ready to leave this land. Oh, yeah, sure you are. Have you talked to Pharaoh lately? Have you got that in writing from Pharaoh lately? And they said, look, we're leaving. And when we leave, would you give us some gold and some silver and some clothing? (laughs) Well, you can just imagine how that went over, right? And yet God moved among the Egyptians to where they complied The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. I would say the Egyptians plundered themselves. This is how God orchestrated these events. God fed them in the wilderness, talking about the Israelites. He watered them in the wilderness and he could be trusted. God provided at every step of the way and they were on their way to the land of promise, fulfilling his word. And so are we. A faithful God promises to care for us every step of the way. He's going to bring us into his presence, into the new heaven and the new earth. And we're traveling through this land as aliens, sojourners through a broken world. And the world in which we reside is very materialistic. There's a disproportionate emphasis on wealth and prosperity. And it leads to becoming distracted along the way. It's a major temptation, even for those of us who put our trust in God. But Matthew 6 says, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek his kingdom first and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God's vast blessing upon Jacob validates his faithfulness to keep his promises. We can rest in his covenant character in all matters, particularly regarding wealth. We're to have a healthy attitude toward wealth. Not that it's to be loved or worshipped, which leads to destruction. It's to be gratefully received as a gift from God to be used for His glory. It's to have a proper approach to work, not as punishment, but an opportunity to honor God. It's to have a genuine trust in God that He knows all of our needs and provides accordingly. He is certain to care for us all the way to our eternal home. We're called to be faithful stewards that demonstrate our trust in Him by using this provision to glorify and honor Him. 
You know, Jesus said that where our heart goes, that's where we are, right? What we do with our money often leads our hearts. You know, if you, if you buy stock with GM company or with another big company, you suddenly become interested in what they're doing, don't you? You're eager to look and see how they are turning a profit. And if you see an article in a periodical, you want to take time to read it and see what's taking place there because your resources are committed in that direction. Or if you decide to support one of those impoverished children that show up on the TV that lives in Africa or in India, then every time you see an article or you see an image that reminds you of that, you're drawn to that because you're invested in that. And do you wish you cared more about eternal things? Or do you think that you should care more about eternal things? Then maybe you should revisit your stewardship practices. Look at the temporal things in your life and how you manage them. And what you believe about eternal things will be reflected. Put your resources, your assets, your money, your possessions, your time, your talents, your energies into the things of God. We should do it because God is the honor, uh, the owner of all these things. But we should do it also because it refines and purifies our attitudes and practices regarding wealth and God's direction for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you and bless you for how you care for us, how you bless us and keep us. We pray that, Lord, you would search our hearts and remind us uh, how we are managing, stewarding the resources that you have placed in our uh, care, and that we be faithful to you. Lord, that you would um, show us how these things can be utilized for your honor, for your glory, for advancing your kingdom, and realizing that, Lord, there's nothing that suggests we can ever outgive you, that you are our model of generosity, and that anything we do that is generous, Lord, to support and honor your name, that you produce fruits that, Lord, are uh, immeasurable, incalculable, very often not even um, tangible to us, but eternal in nature. And that you would convince us, Lord, that uh, all that we do would be evaluated in this context, that we'd see things as you see them for your honor and for your glory. We thank you most of all for the gospel and pray that we be good stewards of this most precious pearl that we would uh, sow it among our friends and our neighbors and watch, Lord, as you multiply and bless as you promised to do to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abraham. May it be so in our hearts and minds, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.